Hey guys, it's Sylvia Frost here with the podcast Indies Who Sell. Um, I'm really excited this week because me and my colleague Mary Novak are going to be trying something a little bit different. Instead of interviewing a best-selling author and trying to figure out how their books tech, we're going to be helping an author who's still trying to figure things out. We'll look at this author's blurb, cover, and look inside and try to find out weak points and then give advice on how to make them stronger. For those of you from places like Kboards, you might be familiar with critiques like this, but I think we're doing something a little bit different. Because places like Kboards and forums like it don't have the time to really dig into the weeds and the nitty-gritty of writing craft, I think sometimes they can miss weak spots in writing that are holding authors back. And more importantly, sometimes things about the book itself aren't visible with in the cover or the blurb. So you might not understand how to give the best packaging for a book until you've actually read at least a part of it. So uh, without further ado, I'd love to get to our author of this week, Patrice Williams. Uh, but before I do, just one quick last note. Um, during this podcast, we'll say the word interracial, but we all mean the word biracial. So we know what it means. <laughs> and uh, Let's get to it. So let's talk a little bit about the um, book that we're focusing on, which is your um, from your Montgomery Vale series, uh, and which we, we're using Scorched, which is the first in the series. So um, this is a historical series. It's set. It seems to be, it's set in the 1930s, correct? Yeah. Mm -hmm. And um, and it's uh, and tell us. So how you, you, Montgomery Vale seems like kind of a interesting and sort of very specific sort of detective. Could you tell us a little bit about that character and how you came up with him? Yes, well, he's actually biracial. Mm -hmm. And I just wanted, um, the first idea, why, um, the reason I came up with him is because um, Edris Elba, I believe that's how you pronounce his name, he was mm -hmm. up for mm -hmm. um, James Bond role, but then he didn't get it. And I right. thought, wouldn't it be cool to have a black James Bond? <laughs> um, but I... And I thought, oh, okay, let me start from that idea. And since I love the, the 1930s, 1940s, I decided I'd create a character in that time period. But I would have to, um, if he was black in that time period, um, there would have to be um, something unusual about his story um, in order to have him rise above, you know, all the things that um, right. you know black people had to face during that time period. So I created an extensive backstory for him before I um, even, you know, started writing. And the backstory on him basically is that his father is biracial, his mother is black, and they um, lived in the South, and he was, uh, he lived in, uh, his father was an accountant and his mother was a school teacher, and they both were uh, killed in an accident uh, when he was about eight, and he was sent to England to be raised by his white grandfather who was an aristocrat and who had um, turned his back on his own son. And so he feels that Montgomery um, is a way for him to make it up um, to, you know, everything that he didn't give his own son. And so he raises Montgomery um, with all the, you know, educational privileges and what wealth has to offer in that country. And he's also um, a Montgomery uh, believes that um, he doesn't know everything about his parents' death, 
And so he actually um, befriends a Scotland Yard uh, detective, and they become uh, friends and eventually colleagues, even though he doesn't join Scotland Yard. And so that's how, um, because of his investigating his uh, parents' death and wanting to know more, that's how he became um, the person that he is and and this, um, you know, well-known investigator. And the basic story is after his grandfather passes away, he comes across a picture of his parents that are standing in front of a home in New York that he's never seen before. And he decides to jump um, to jump on board the Hindenburg, <laughs> you know, on his way to New York to um, do more research on um, his parents' passing. And of course, you know, as luck would have it, um, there's actually espionage and a conspiracy, and it brings down the Hindenburg and kind of throws him in a, to another storyline. Okay. And uh, so that's the the basis of that first book. Okay, thank you. That was that was really I, really helpful for everyone listening. This is fantastic. Okay, so it seems to me that in so like we said, we're going to talk about the cover and the blurb and the look inside, and it makes the most sense to me to go in that order because that's how okay. anyone is going to see the book. And Sylvia is the yeah. cover expert, so I'm going to let her kind of take it away. Okay. Um, in talking okay. about perceptions of cover. Sweet. So first things, I've got a little surprise for you. Um, I'm sending it your way via email. To help kind of explain what I'm talking about, I mocked up a little version of your cover to kind of give an idea oh. um, so you can see uh, what what I'm kind of talking about. And I just sent that to your email. Um, so we you can look at that when you have a moment, but we won't we won't start there, but just so... So you know that's there. Okay. And so, uh, I, first of all, I want to say that I think uh, there is, there's a lot that this cover is doing really right. We should probably describe a little bit about what the cover right. as it stands looks like. So yeah. I'd say the cover as it stands looks like now is it's sort of a sepia-toned um, cover with a man in a top hat in the middle and he's turned his back to the camera and he's got these kind of very he's holding these very fancy gloves near his waist in within his he's not quite silhouette although he is a dark figure uh, imposed upon him it's not quite visible in the thumbnail it kind of looks just like uh, like fire in the thumbnail but if you go into full size you can see it's actually a photo of the Hindenburg crashing um, which is very cool and then as for the type treatment, we've sort of got all caps sort of titling. I don't know exactly what font it is, but for people in the know, I would say it's something close to Trajan or Trajan Pro. And then we've got her name um, smaller in smaller but still readable in a single line on the bottom. The moment the sepia tone very clearly communicates historical. Um, and the, the top hat gives some hint of that also communicates historical all of the text is readable um and the typography is clean and also doesn't not communicate historical it's not like there's a bunch of crazy um flourishes that make me think that this is a romance novel or anything else so i think uh and what also you do really well and which is really important is that there is clear branding between the two books so book two, although we're not going to go into it, but book two uses the same photo with a different picture imposed over the man. So it's the readers have a very clear idea of 
the brand that this is a continual series. You've picked an image that you've been able to use over multiple books. Um, this is all really solid. If I were to redo this cover, here's what I might look at. And what the cover that I designed sort of really quickly has, uh, it, it does a couple of things that I think yours didn't quite do, which, and the first of which is to kind of create depth. So right now we've got this, this pretty solid picture, um, of the man in the top hat, but because of the sepia tone, uh, it has a tendency to look just a tiny bit flat um, because it's all one color and there's no kind of texture or depth. So when I did it, I used the same sepia tone, but I put a border of a distressed photograph around it. So with a slight shadow underneath. So right away, we feel like we're being drawn into the image. And then I also layered some fire right on the bottom of the image so it looks like the photograph's burning, which again creates drama and texture and makes the image really feel alive. In terms of the font, I picked a font called Bream Catcher, which is sort of a condensed 1920s slash 30s art deco-y font that's still very readable, but just communicates the period just a tiny bit more. Um, and then I also did a sort of like a slight uh, a very subtle art deco-y border around the text shadows so that again we're getting more of this history because one thing that I had happened to me when I looked at your cover I'm not super versed in history <laughs> I'm kind of a, I, I'm, I don't read a lot of historical fiction novels I'm, I'm not super versed on what the different styles look like so when I looked at your cover this the image didn't necessarily scream 1930s to me for me, I kind of, when I saw that top hat, I, w I wondered, oh my, is this a Victorian? But again, I don't know. So maybe there are readers yeah. in the know who they look at that and it's like, oh yes, of yeah. course, this is the fashion. But for or, me... Or maybe they, maybe they think like you too. Maybe they you do. Know? So I picked an image. I found this image of a handsome young African-American fellow who's got a bowler hat and then a pinstripe suit. <laughs> And it's, he's not quite as gentlemanly, which I think if you're going for James Bond look, yeah. he's not as, so that's, that's one downside of him. But the upside of him is, you know, he's not, he's not bad to look at. He doesn't look necessarily biracial, which is another problem. I'm sure as you found, it's very hard to find images of people of color in period dress. Yeah. Um, yes. It's, yes, very hard. It's a big challenge. I'm looking challenge. at your image, by the way, right now. Yeah. Oh, great. Great. I, for me... As a designer, I and this also comes to my second uh, second point I was going to make that it's clearly you're marketing it as a novel that um, has an African American protagonist, and that's really exciting because like oh my god yes I want a black James Bond where has it been all my life you know <laughs> but and I think that that's a selling point and right now I would say that I don't I don't get from the back profile of that image that that guy necessarily is biracial um, and. I, if I was someone looking for a black James Bond type, I wouldn't think from that cover, oh, this is the book for me. Because it doesn't necessarily mm -hmm. look right. like a person of, of color to me. Oh. I don't know. You know what I mean? Okay. Yeah. And yeah, can I, can I ask, yeah. actually, I, I think that that's going to be one of the sort of themes of, of all of our points is about that. Uh, the materials and uh, until you get to the look inside, the materials don't really highlight the fact that the character is biracial. Um, and I was wondering how you were thinking about that as you were putting together your marketing. Um, was it something that you wanted to really embrace? Was it something you wanted to avoid? Was it something? I mean, where where did you 
how, how did you feel like that was going to work in the market? Well, as far as the blurb is concerned, I don't make it um, well known, um, mm -hmm. but I wanted to, you know, position it in a way that people who are interested in African American um, detectives could find it mm -hmm. and be happily surprised. Um, you know, perhaps that's something. You know, maybe I perhaps need a different strategy. It was kind of, but so you were sort of downplaying it in some of this. On, on purpose, although it's uh, it's important and it is what you're doing, uh, but the the yeah, idea was that up front you wanted to downplay it a little bit. But I want not on the cover though, um, downplay okay. it a little bit I, because I don't on the blurb um, because um, his race really isn't um, that important to the story. It's important mm -hmm. to who he is, but it it's not this strong thread that goes throughout. Um, so I don't really make it a huge point in the blurb, but mm -hmm. you know I don't I do want it to be known on the cover. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. I I I mean I'm totally behind that. I can see this being. It's not a novel about you know black James Bond going solving black issues. It's a novel about a James Bond who happens to right. be black. You know what I mean? So so I'll just because it it does kind of come up through the materials. Um, I'll put up my perspective, which is kind of only my own perspective. I don't have kind of marketing science behind this one way or the other. Um, but I feel like if you're, my, my own perception is that if, if your character is, you know, it was a person of color, you wouldn't want to limit it to some sort of niche of those are the only, you know, only people who only want to read people of color will read this book. Yeah. You, you certainly don't want to narrow yeah. it that much. Um, mm -hmm. I can say that with people I've worked with and knowing my own tastes in books, um, I, th I think, though, that your 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 niche might be people who are excited about reading about people of color, and in possibly you know perhaps for because they identify, and then also kind of people of every color who are sort of cosmopolitan and like to read to get into a place they haven't been before and get into a mind they haven't inhabited before in a book. Um, and I feel I so I'll say that I, I think that to appeal to those readers, uh, it, it may also be good to address. You know, this is an you know an international an interracial thriller set in the 30s. In some ways, can be kind of exciting. Like, what's uh, where is that pulling in? Whereas then there are some readers that would, if they're going to be put off by the fact that the character is a person of color, then you've it's kind of like well screw them but also like you, they're not going to jump in like it's, it's going to be hard to sort of trick them into buying and reading yeah um, they'll get yeah. to so, look inside but, and you know then they'll yeah. be like oh this isn't what i wanted you know what i mean you're just i think in some ways you'd just be delaying the inevitable um or even right. they read the whole book and they're like there's just something i didn't like about it one star you know what i mean <laughs> yeah um, and so, 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 my, so my own take on like that general issue, which I put out to anyone you know who'd like to comment, is that you can also sort of there's sort of downplaying it, but then there's also kind of owning it and celebrating it and saying this is a special book because it's doing something special because as like images of every advertisement in, running in America right now show, there's kind of a hunger for people are thinking that diversity sells, right? Like some yeah. really smart corporate minds currently strongly believe that having diverse casts in their commercials is going to sell better. 
And mm -hmm. it would be nice to, if, if you're in a place where you can ride that wave, I think it would be yeah. great to do, like, I think it'll help you to do it. I think you would gain more than you lose by doing that. Yeah, I think you're right, too, in that really making sure that the way that the blurb is written is that this is a black James Bond or a black 1930s, not... Not this is a story about necessarily black issues or inter um, biracial issues, right? And if you can do that, I think that's going to be really, really interesting because I know I, one thing that I really hunger for when I look for novels about, you know, people of color, LGBT, you know, people with disabilities, what have you, um, is I, I don't want to read issues books. I'm not super into that, but I'm yeah. just, if there's a book that's just about them being alive, I'm so down that I would much yeah. rather, that is they so just, exciting yeah. to me. That is exciting. Like they just happen to be LGBT, you know. Cute. Right. Right. That's so you know, cool. That, that's the driving force. Right. Know? What is it right. actually like to be a person and live? You know what I mean? Right. Um, yeah. I think that's really right. cool. So yeah. Uh, Let's see if there's anything else I want to say. So just a one, one last thing about the cover and just talking about the version I mocked up. I, in, in your cover, I didn't, I wasn't able to tell from the thumbnail that that was the Hindenburg. It looked like it might be a house on fire. It might be looking through a fence hmm. to a fire. It wasn't visible from the thumbnail. So if there's someone who's like super into Hindenburg stories, like that is their one click catnip, you know what I mean? They're like Hindenburg <laughs> click. I don't think they're going to like, click your story just from the cover. So in my mock-up, I really wanted to make sure that the Hindenburg was more, was visible from the thumbnail, which I think, think it is. Yeah. So those are just, those are, those are kind of all, all yeah. my thoughts on it. I, I, I don't know. Do, what, what do you think? Does any of that ring true or? Yes, I've been, you're actually uh, looking at the third version of this cover. <laughs> oh, wow. um, the very, I know how that goes. Yes. Uh, I've been struggling with that. Um, the first cover I was in love with, I actually had a, um, an artist uh, designed a character um, that looked like um, the, who I envisioned Montgomery Vale to be, and it had this beautiful Hindenburg, you know, in, in all its colorful glory, exploding behind this character in a top hat and a tuxedo. Um, I loved it, but then I ended up um, getting some comments from people thinking it was a graphic novel or someone even mm. said a children's book, and so I said, <laughs> oh, okay, so I guess I have to change it. And so I changed it to something else that I really liked, but then, and it was of another uh, a black man from that time period, and I overlaid um, something, a graphic that kind of looked like material um, fabric over it um, to kind of give it that, that older time period type of look. Um, but after... About three weeks of that, I thought, hmm, I don't know if that will grab people. So I pulled that, and then I created um, this one, and I figured I would just change, you know, what's reflected in his jacket. I ha After creating that, I actually thought that, you know, it's not doing the story as much justice as I know it can be as well. So, you know, this is a perfect time, you know, um, to hear, you know, additional feedback. And it's a tricky business. I mean, that I, I thank you so much for sharing all of that because, like, I'm loving the sound of that first cover, for instance. I'm sure it was really beautiful, but I also, you know, there's there is that's the thing. There's so much that's tricky about is this really explaining, you know, what this is? And I'm not visual enough yeah. to be able to make judgments like that, really. Do you have any other questions of how we perceive the cover, or that you might want advice on, or? 
Are, are you are you okay with us moving on to the blurb now? Oh, we can we can move on. You did excellent. Um, you know, gave me some excellent examples of um, how I can punch it up. And, Sweet. And your example is oh, beautiful. Oh, thank you. Okay, so here's here's the blurb on uh, Patrice's book. Book one in a series of standalone historical thrillers revised. Book two, ASIN, and it has the ASIN. From an Amazon best-selling author, Montgomery Vale Scorched will enthrall historical mystery detective thriller readers. Montgomery Vale Scorched is perfect for fans who have devoured Alex Rosenberg's The Girl from Krakow, Jeffrey Archer's Best Kept Secret, or Anthony Doerr, All the Light We Cannot See. In 1937, esteemed investigator Montgomery Vale boards the Hindenburg in search of clues about his family's past. But when he finds a dead body on board, he'll be thrust into a dangerous conspiracy as the airship hurtles towards certain doom. Scroll up and grab your copy now. <laughs> yeah. Um, first of all, oh my God. Yeah, what happens? Scroll up and buy our copy now, Mary. This is an exciting blurb. Second of all, um, just to note, the blurb cuts off for the read more after, or Anthony Doerr, comma, all the light we, and then it says read more. So what a, okay. what an Amazon reader sees is just from an Amazon best-selling author to all the light we cannot see. Okay. Um, just F, just, this is just for, so that people know who aren't looking at the page as we are right now, or if it changes since we published this podcast, which... I know when I did a book cover podcast where I redid someone's covers, I had to take all these screenshots because things changed after I talked about it. Okay, so yeah. Mary, do you want to start? The start actually is that point about the read more, um, that uh, you you want to uh, get to where – you want to get this to where the person is actually reading some of the plot, especially since it is an exciting plot. Um, we talked about, you know, one possibility would be to flip the paragraphs between the plot and the kind of overview. Another possibility is to reduce that list of similar books, um, maybe just list the authors, maybe just list one book with one author, um, but that will cut out some text to get you up higher in the read more. My favorite um, thing to do is to only list about two, like blank meets blank, because I think that way there's a little bit of motion there too, because it gives people two things that they maybe thought wouldn't go together, going together. Like uh, Project Runway meets The Wire. You're like, what? Like, how does that work, right? So I, yeah. <laughs> you, you don't necessarily need to have the like, to be like hugely discordant. I mean, maybe you don't even want that, but I think good advice for writing in general is just whenever you can get a little bit more active verbs in there, it's always good too, you know. Now that we know that the phrase Black James Bond is available, <laughs> uh, you, know, something like, you know, something like that, like that really kind of captures, um, th that's a very neat way to capture what you're going for with this series, and it might okay. fit the blurb. And maybe um, even not okay. James Bond, but if there's some more, if there's a period equivalent, like Sherlock Holmes is a little too early, but like, I don't know, something that feels like exciting and whatever. And you might not, you might not want to be as explicit as like black Sherlock Holmes or black James Bond, but like international, yeah. you know, interracial man of mystery. That's ridiculous. Don't yeah. use that. But something like that. <laughs> Yeah. yeah, I mean, there's, there's, you know, blurbs can be punchy and they can, you know, we're trying to capture, conjure these images with people. Like the fact that he's going down on the Hindenburg really conjures an image. Yeah, that's really in, pretty powerful. Right. 
Uh, that's that's yeah. very powerful. Um, but the the one thing is, does it? So this the whole story doesn't take place on the on the Hindenburg, right? No, it doesn't. Yeah, right. That, that so, actually propels him. Uh, that's you know that's the inciting incident, as they call it in screenwriting. You know that propels mm-hmm. the rest of the storyline. Right. I I mean I loved that. I loved it so much that would have made me click on the book to read the look inside. Uh, there was a little bit of a disconnect with me, um, and we'll get into this when we talk about the look inside, where I was expecting okay. the whole novel to be him solving a mystery on the Hindenburg with it like slowly more and more stuff going wrong until he's trying to solve the mystery at the same time where it's like exploding into flames and he's like jumping off and like with the dead body and the mystery, mm-hmm. you know, something totally. And I had this image of the time constraint being the Hindenburg about to explode. And that being kind of the, and so when I read it and then the Hindenburg exploded in like the first, in the look inside, I, there was a little moment of disappointment on my end being like, oh man, I'm not going to see him get to run against the clock against the Hindenburg. Darn it. So I think you might want to find out what is, um, I know that you want the inside, the inciting incident for sure. But like usually in a blurb, I don't think you'd want to pose a question in your blurb that's going to be answered with in the look inside. Okay. Because yeah. I think that way people will feel like they've already read everything they need to read and they'll feel a sense of closure and be able to move on, um, yeah. which you never want. <laughs> <Okay>. <laughs> right. You, you want to keep the Hindenburg in this blurb. Um, it's, For sure. It's so recognizable, but it's right. mostly a matter of, matter of sort of adjusting the tense. Right. Uh, you know, okay. shifting the grammar a little bit, but also making it clear that exciting stuff happens after the blimp blows up. Right. Or, you know, he'll have to like comb through, you know, the wreckage or there's still maybe there's going to be another explosion or whatever the conflict is that happens next. Because um, I'm yeah. sure there is. Right. More. I, I had a much longer blurb that actually told more of um, what was to come. But then I uh, did some research and they uh, and you know, basically said you're t- you're telling too much of the story. You know, um, you've got to mm-hmm. leave some to the imagination, and so um, I ended up shortening it. Perhaps I went to the opposite. End. Yeah, it's always a balancing act. It's really tough. That might be something that yeah. would trip us up. Um, yeah. And okay. what is our journey to buy, basically? Since that was sort of a okay. convenient segue to the look inside. All right. So, do you want to start, Mary? This is like, I guess, sure. my catchphrase. I mean, one, one, the first thing I'll say is that when we were initially preparing for the podcast, I was looking. I didn't realize Amazon gives two look insides of two different lengths for an ebook versus a print book, and the print one, on in this case, is much shorter. So it cuts off at a really early, kind of expositiony point. Um, and you know, there's much, it's a much clearer idea of what the book is like if you go to the, um, e-reader thing. So I had, you know, talking about like what our experience was, I hadn't known that I hadn't known that there would be different lengths and, um, or why that is the case. And, um, so I, I wound up, you know, getting much more out of the longer version. So the look at, to kind of briefly describe what this is like, the, the look inside is, as much as about the first 10 to 12 pages of the book, and it's, I think, about two chapters, it starts with images of Montgomery being on the Hindenburg, smoking a fine cigar, and discovering that the guy sitting next to him is dead. Although, um, wait, we have to be clear. We don't find out either that that is Montgomery or that the man is dead in the first section, I don't think, unless I miss right. something. And then we go into a chapter of... Um, 
of Montgomery's past, which is actually very much what you outlined, Patrice, at the beginning of the podcast. Um, and so we we learn much of that information um, in this next chapter, and um, which includes or maybe starts with the line, though it was 1937, Montgomery Vale was not known as a Negro fat first, a man second. I have to say that struck me as a strong first sentence. Yeah, I agree. Uh, that, uh, mm-hmm. I, again, we understand, like, I totally understand that there is a lot of complicated thinking about, you know, writing interracial characters in general, but that's re- a really striking thought to me, is that there are certain things setting this guy apart. Okay, Digging so in. The Look Inside has about a page and a half of entering the Hindenburg and discovering, smoking a cigar and discovering a dead body. Um, then there are um, a number of pages, a full chapter that is sort of the the history of Montgomery Vale from early childhood up until the point where his grandfather has raised him and left him a lot of money and he's discovered his parents' photograph and hops on the Hindenburg. Um, and then it goes back to the present action of the Hindenburg where someone is planting a bomb. Uh, Montgomery is sort of looking for clues about the dead body that he's found. Um, and the bomb goes off. And that's where the full look inside ends. Yeah, I think that we also get a little bit of the um, the uh, church nearby and the ranch were commandeered, served as a triage center. So by the time the look inside ends, we've already sort of had the Hindenburg disaster more or less happen. So now that I think people have some idea of what this looks like, um, I give you free reign. My first leading point for someone like you who is very into research, very thorough with period detail, is finding all this stuff about how the Hindenburg is built and what makes a fine cigar, um, and is just very detail-oriented. One of the ways that you can put your best foot forward, especially in these first couple pages, is to be very strict with yourself about how you curate those details. Look at potentially each one and think about what does this detail add to the point that I'm making. My perception with those first couple pages was that I wasn't getting a whole lot out of some of the detail about the construction of the Hindenburg. It wasn't clear to me how that really mattered. Um, but then, in contrast, there's all this detail where Montgomery sits down and he lights a cigar and the attendant goes and gets a special lighter and, like, lights it. And this is how you know it's a fine cigar is that the ash is more than a link and goes to more than an inch long before it falls. Um, and to me, all of that really goes towards your man of sophistication, you know, that yeah. all of those details kind of do lead into something that's a very important point for the book, um, which is about who this character is without him just telling us. To kind of go through, especially in these first pages, to kind of clear out some of the extra detail um, to help people get to the good stuff. Yeah, I would also say it's possible to condense a little. There's a line, a steward opened up a riveted metal door and stepped over the raised metal doorway. Um, you know, I, on a sentence level, I'm not sure that we need metal twice in that sentence. And then do we need to know all of the step-by-step motions that these people are making for the plot? On the one hand, it's really great because we can really see what's happening very clearly. On the other hand, I would much rather learn more about the gentleman in Montgomery than watch a steward that 
take smaller motions. And sort of on that note, for that opening bit, I would love to have it, and this is actually going to be kind of a more global note as well. One of the things that I noticed, and it makes so much sense when you're a screen, when you're, that you're a screenwriter, because I tried to write a screenplay (laughs) once and it was hard. Let me tell you, it's hard business. And one of the things that I found hard about it is I kept wanting to sort of insert my authorial voice into the screenplay, which, you know, and to have direct the image when that's really, as I understand it, the director's job, right? But I still got a sense of when I was reading this that there was some of that hesitation to really step in and fully own the voice and the character from the inside out, letting Montgomery see and hear and feel and experience this world and letting us get deep in his POV and see this world through his eyes instead of trying to take a more objective stance, which which it seems like you did, which is to kind of just go through line by line with the action. So I think one of the ways that you can make this opening more powerful is to really let us live inside. Cause that for me is a huge part of the draw of the story. What a cool character Montgomery is with this backstory, but I don't really get to see what it's like to be on the Hindenburg through his eyes. I get to see it through the camera's eyes, um, which to me is much less exciting because I can't, there is no actual images. So the thing that a book can do that a screenplay can't is to let you see what is Montgomery thinking? How is he feeling? What does this mean to him? What are the stakes for him? Um, very clearly. This first opening didn't quite accomplish that in the way that I might have liked it to, as well as the fact that we don't even know that it's Montgomery for the first half, which I get is really sort of cool because it's like, oh, we want him to be this man of mystery. There is that slight element. If you didn't have it clear from the blurb of the cover that um, this man is interracial, maybe the reader is picturing something else and then you get that next line and it might challenge your perceptions a little bit, which is could be cool. But I think it might be even stronger to open with owning who Montgomery is and getting us a strong flavor of his character living um, and seeing this world. Uh, And then I would also say, I I think it might've been a mistake that you didn't end with uh, him finding the dead man. Because for me, this opening first page, if you will, there isn't quite as strong a hook as I might have. Because I, I didn't know that the, the guy was dead, and so it's just he sits down and to smoke. There's a few too many things missing for the reader, I think, to be fully engaged as they might be. Oh, I'm, I'm, I'm writing furiously, actually. Okay. I think that, because we sort of had broken this down into some key points, so cur- curate details. And then Sylvia sort of just talked about um, integrating the character in the action. I was struck by how, in some ways, this is a very realistic period piece that's very grounded. But then there's also what I took to be sort of the fantasy that is kind of this, um, you know, the biracial James Bond. um, And also, like, here is this particular guy's almost Batman-like origins that have led him and him alone to have this very specific way to move through the world that's really different from almost anyone else in 1937. I I feel like those are, you know, two interesting things. You might have kind of a war with yourself about whether you are more an accurate period writer or whether you are more writing a fantasy. And it seems like this started from a place of fantasy, like what would the Black James on in 1937 be like? 
And I just would like to be a voice that people should be writing their darn fantasies, no matter what they are, no matter when they happen. There are not a million billion Regency Dukes out there in the world for maidens to marry. That was a 10-year period that had very limited influence. <laughs> you, you know, so it's like there is there is a wide precedent in fiction for just having the freaking fun you want to have. And I don't know yeah. if how much you feel like torn about that. Like this is such a fraught area that there will be some blowback no matter what you do, but have fun. And I always kind of want to say that if you're loving history, but writing fantasy, have fun with the fantasy and maybe let a little bit of the history go. Um, you know, don't abandon your soul entirely, but you know, it's okay to kind of own this incredibly debonair Idris Elba created, you know, figure and just sort of be like, boom, and he's there. You know, this is how it is. Mm -hmm. This is Batman. Mm -hmm. This is James Bond. And this is the deal. And I would have as much fun with this and own the fact that you're allowed to have as much fun with this as you want. Because mm -hmm. people have been screwing with writing history stuff forever. And there should, yeah. I would love to have as many voices and as broad voices doing that as possible. Mm. <laughs> That's funny that you said that, have fun with it, because I don't think of, yeah. ooh, let me have fun when I was writing this. I, I approached it much differently of, of making sure I was accurate, making sure that it was exciting, um, right. but not from a fanciful point of view. Right. I like that. Yeah, I think that's going to really make it, that makes it, I know for me, the scenes that I'm writing when I have fun, those are often the, the scenes that readers respond to the most. Like joy comes through in writing. Yeah. It really does. Yeah, and right. and I we talk a lot, I talk a lot with Marion about my other writing friends about something called emotional fantasy, which is um, basically this idea that people are reading for emotional fantasies, whether that in the romance that's a fantasy that they'll find this one true love and they'll be with them for the rest of their life, which isn't, you know, a fantasy, but it's in some ways a fantasy. And then, you know, <laughs> in for historical, it could be the fantasy that, you know, what is it like to to be a king, the fantasy of being a king or a duke or rising yeah. from being a, you know, a poor person yeah. to make friends with the duke or and, uh, James Bond, actually the fantasy of being some super spy. Um, yeah. and, and for me, realism always in fiction, the job of realism is to just make the fantasy more believable or the story more believable. Even if it's not a fantasy, you might be telling a really important story about like the relationship between a mother and a daughter, right? We're always editing and curating for excitement or, or for, you know, to tell the story we want to tell. In my editing work, I wind up putting all these books, you know, very much under a microscope. And it's really striking to me how um, I think there will always be a divide and a, a distance between just pure wish fulfillment and realism, frankly, and like reality. Mm -hmm. I think that it can be easy to forget the joy that's possible with wish fulfillment and that, you know, some of the biggest sellers of all time can be just ludicrous books when it comes to I would to say reality. almost all of them. Right. Twilight, I mean, I, Twi well, any Twilight thriller is, novel Twilight especially yeah. is a very specific wish that it just so happens connected with a million billion readers, even though if you're not someone that subscribes to that wish, it may not make any sense. And so right. there's like that. Or writing. even James Bourne or, uh, yeah. like, yeah. you know, even all, all the light you cannot see, these are different kinds of wishes 
But there is always, I'm of the firm belief, there's always a wish hidden, even, even in nonfiction somewhere and so so mostly this is this all boils down to patrice have fun with this in the way that you want to have fun and don't you know don't try not to feel limited by like outer expectations of what that fun should be and i think that you'll have a great time with it and your readers will have a great time with it that's good advice yeah that's good advice um because it's really hard writing uh, historical um, fiction in in certain time periods because right. readers are so critical. They'll yeah. uh, give you a one star or email you because the gun you described was actually from a year prior, you know, <laughs> type of thing. And so um, that's why I've put so much into um, the accuracy. But by doing so, I might have choked out some of the like you said, the fantasy or the life. I, one thing, important thing to remember is that if you don't include the gun, they can't check you on it being the wrong one. <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? <laughs> uh, I, I got a review once for one of my books that I called a song. It's a modern, it's a modern day paranormal romance book, but I referenced a Backstreet Boys song that was actually by NSYNC. And I got a one star review for that. You cannot yeah. let them take the reins because there are right. many more yeah. people who are well, silent who are like, what's going to happen to Idris, you know, James Bond, Montgomery next, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that's, it's also just, you know, it's, it's different kinds of readers looking for different kinds of things. And so some re- absolutely historical fiction is going to have a lot of people who are very into accuracy. And that's part of what, you know, that's part of what makes a book better or worse for them is that just how like perfectly it captures another time um, and captures all the details that they know. But that's one, and, and I'm not downplaying appreciating a book like that. That is one way to enjoy a book. And then to remember that, yeah, there's all these other ways to enjoy like the kind of exhilaration of the power fantasy or the, you know, the romance fantasy or the um, here. I mean, James Bond is just the coolest freaking guy in the universe. uh, Mm. No, except, you know, that's what he is. And that's a fantasy. And it always was. And it's much more, that's much more why James Bond is such a success than almost any other detail is just being the coolest dude in the room um, wherever Mm -hmm. he goes. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Um, yeah. I wanted to circle back to the point about integrating character with action. I talked about it a little bit in the in the first part about letting us get more more deeply into Montgomery's head and his point of view. Um, a really good exercise I have for that um, is I rec I always recommend people write something in first person, um, just within their character. It can be any scene. It can be when you've already written, when you haven't, just so you can get to know your character. It, really up close and personal um in a way and i think too um moving forward to the next part of the opening which is this the backstory which i found i have to say pretty darn interesting that was it was interesting i wanted to read it uh this much backstory so soon dragged on me a little bit as a reader because i didn't have a, a super strong hook from the last paragraph of wondering like what's gonna happen next is the hindenburg gonna explode is the dead body it just that wasn't there. And then the next paragraph, we were flashing to an entirely different location, which I wasn't also wasn't able to see the connection to the first part of the hook. So that jump mm-hmm. made me a little. And I wonder, there's a really great story I've heard about how to distribute backstory for um, 
for editing. And one of my favorite resources is a woman called um, Margie Lawson. Um, and she does this sort of crazy method where she makes you highlight your book in a bunch of different colors. And um, for dialogue, for inner thought, for description, and for action. And so you can kind of see if you've got a giant block of inner thought, it's like, oh, maybe we want to, you know, break this up just a titch. Or if you've got a giant block of action, like, can I add some? So it's just finding that balance. And so for me, the backstory should be like a beautiful glass, like a beautiful vase. And then you want to take that vase and you want to smash it really hard on the ground. (laughs) And then that vase is going (laughs) to explode into a ton of little shards. And then you want to take each of those little shards and ever so carefully insert them into your story and into the action where it matters and where it's relevant and have that backstory. But maybe there are some things that you don't need to know right now. And maybe there's some things that might even be more powerful if revealed later after we have context. And maybe there are some ways that you can take this backstory and make it evoke questions instead of just giving the answers. Because I really want to be always having a question that I want to want I'm trying to find answered at the end of almost every paragraph to keep me hooked into reading the next one now sometimes that's not possible and you know there's a very another amazing story I promise I'll stop telling stories this last one about Anne Rice who wrote Interview with the Vampire um, she wrote a book and she, the way she wrote it is she wanted a hook at the end of every page so she sent it off to the publisher they published it but when they published it they ruined the spacing so that the hook wasn't at the end of every page. It was somewhere near the middle. Sometimes Mm. there were two hooks and the book didn't sell. And then she called her publisher and she said, please, can you fix the formatting? And it's not like wrong formatting, but can you do it the way I did it? And they said, oh my God, crazy lady, whatever. You've made us lots of money. Fine. They did it. The book starts to sell. (laughs) So it's hugely, it's really quite important. It's tough to do. Um, And I mean, It's a really, it's a balancing act, right? Because you don't want to be having the reader have so many questions that they're overwhelmed and you don't want it to be moving so quick that we don't have time to live with the readers and be in their skin and time to breathe. Um, But I think it's, it's something to keep in mind. Um, And so on that note, after, after we get through all of this backstory, there is what I think might be the conventional opening for this, if it were. Um, just more of a thriller, a historical thriller, which is we've got a figure walking along a darkened catwalk near the after end of the vessel. He pulled out dynamite. Shit gets real, right? <laughs> so we've got dynamite on a giant helium balloon, right? That's like... That you know, know is going to blow that up. That you know is going to blow up. <laughs> yeah. That's serious beans. Uh-huh. So if you opened with that, right, and then moved to Montgomery, and then we've, we've got a character that we're learning to care about. Or you could even open with Montgomery and really in his head and we learn to care about him. And then you say, and here's the dynamite. And we're like, oh no, not Montgomery. You know, the last, the last comment. I noticed sometimes there was, uh, there's a lot of the similar structure of, of sentence and similar length. For example, the, the steward grasped the lighter and returned to the gentleman. The gentleman clipped off the end of the cigar with a cutter and deposited it into the gloved hand of the steward. The steward pushed it down on the lever with his thumb to create the flame. The gentleman did not stick his cigar directly into the flame. So you see what I'm saying, that we've got a lot of thes yeah. and we've got a lot of person, action, object, you know, subject, uh, mm-hmm. verb, object, SVO, right? And you might want to break that up. And one great way to break that up is to have thoughts and reaction and colors. But I think as you're looking at this book and other books that you write, really trying to loosen up and move around, trying to feeling like you just have to get 
It's funny that you say worrying about getting every detail accurate because I very much get that impression of someone making sure, standing in a room and wanting to make sure that they don't miss anything. Um, and you, and, and as a result, being very methodical about the order of the logic and all that is good because some readers really, they're like one little logic flaw and they're like, oh my gosh, I, I don't understand. Where am I? Somehow I ended up in Mars. And you're like, no, we just, you know, we are yeah. at the car now. Um, but I think that, <laughs> I think for the most part, I think for the most part, readers will, you're, you're much more likely to get a reader who is kind of wondering like, okay, what's next? What's next? Than someone that's like, did he really step over the door? Didn't he trip? Cause I know that in, you know, 18th, in the thirties, yeah. the, the doors were like a three inch trip. So he must've tripped like inaccuracy, one star. I think that it's much more likely that you'll get the, the former. And so really getting out of feeling like you have to choreograph every motion, I think will be really helpful for sort of okay. loosening this up. Well, I feel that, this uh, yeah. thank you so much thank Patrice. You so I much feel for... that this was awesome but yeah I had a lot of fun you. like I, I hope um, that you enjoyed yourself <laughs> oh, and found this, this useful the end? yeah well I, I uh, so you're welcome to ask some more questions but I, I'm out of out of out of stories believe it or not <laughs> 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 I didn't think it was possible either but yeah. here we That's are wonderful reaction thank you <laughs> yeah 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 well I do Boy, you have been extremely helpful yeah I, I'm glad that you thought that do you have any thoughts on on what we've said or any questions or yes well i you know when you uh, put something out there in the world you think that it's the best it can be you yeah. know at that moment right um however <laughs> uh, i've discovered it's not the case and it can always be improved upon and um, these are some amazing um things that i didn't even think about i knew the cover i've just been struggling with the covers um, I knew that um, I probably would have to do it again, um, but I didn't realize that um, the design of the cover that you created um, far surpasses, you know, um, anything that I envisioned for it, and that's such a big um, plus for me. So I really appreciate that. And yeah. then going to the blurb, which everybody uh, understands, that's what you know sells the book, you know, after the cover. And realizing the mistakes I made there, I'm definitely going to be making those changes. And uh, I actually like the idea of um, going through the book and trying to add some real moments, I guess, for mm -hmm. him. Mm -hmm. um, and right. maybe even plucking out a, a few of the technical. So I've got a lot to work with. And, you know, that will definitely impact the second book that's already written and the third book that I'm currently writing. Yeah. Uh, right now. Oh no, yeah. this is really good. This is really helpful. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you. Bye.